Yes. <laughs> I thought I was preaching. So, that. like this week, I don't, I'm going to ask you guys a question. How much? How many in hours per week? How much time do you reckon the guys spend prepping up? Just do you know? Did you see Facebook? Oh no. Okay, so you know, you, you're not counted right now. I want to see what it want because I know you know. What do, we, what do you reckon, Gabby? Just a guess. Twenty. What do you reckon, Gabe? Ten? Okay. That's pretty good. That's a good bracket. So we had a little thing. We gave him an article to read and we read it. Let's talk about on average how many hours people prep up. Okay. And I think, what were you, Ben? You were, would have been, yeah, and you, what were you? You were about 13 or something. So like these guys have, have prepped up for you and for the Lord for 10 to 20 hours. I just wanted to build you guys up and go, that's awesome. Thank you. And they're not using dodgy websites or plagiarising, which apparently goes on in a lot of churches. So if they've gone to that effort, I just ask you to really open up your hearts and ask the Lord to soften your hearts to have a listener what they've got to say. And Ben's already prayed. That's all. I'm just all about building up today, man. It's like build up, build up. Oh. Yes. Cool. Um, am I on? I don't even know if this is... Okay, so it's recording. Cool. All right. Good morning, Willow Burn. We're finally to the message. Yes, You'll sit down, Adrian. Um, yeah, cool. So yeah, good to see you all. Um, as you're probably aware, all of the guys in the School of Preachers are supposed to be up here from time to time preaching. That includes Ben, Tim and myself, learning from the older guys. And I've kind of been a bit slack this year. I haven't actually been up here since January preaching. So before I get into that, um, the actual message, I wanted to just tell you a bit about why. Some of you already know, most of you already have some idea. But, um, yeah, I feel I owe you a bit of an explanation anyway. So back in February, Sarah and I discovered we were going to be parents again. Cool. We are happy about that. We were overjoyed, in fact. Another baby, a playmate for Abby, a chance to pour out all the love that we um, had stored up inside us that we kind of lost the chance to do with the one before. Um, we were excited. We were hopeful. We were happy. Okay? And then Sarah started getting sick, really, really sick. And we thought, oh, okay, maybe this is a boy because she wasn't that sick with Abby. No. She got sicker and sicker, and as it dragged on, morning sickness became all-day, everyday sickness. And we were just like, no, something's wrong. So we went for some tests, and as most of you know by now, um, DNA test came back 99% positive that our baby has chromosomal damage, um, most likely has what's known as Down syndrome. So that was a bit of a shock to us. Now, I'm not going to try and explain to you all the emotion and the process we went through, because it's been rough. Um, and I don't really have words to describe it all. But there were certainly some emotions in there which made me very um, unfit for teaching others. There was anger, there was disappointment, there was a lot of things in there which, if I'd got up here, all I would have been able to share with you is a whole bunch of broken bitterness. So I asked the elders, can I get off the preaching roster for a bit? So that's why they graciously said yes, and poor old Ben had to pick up the slack, especially when Tim went away as well. <laughs> ben had to preach back to back a couple times. That was pretty cool. Anyway, um, I'm back. Hi. Um, I'm glad to be here because I do feel like God has um, given me some things to share with you. But um, a lot of it isn't going to be stuff that's new. A lot of it's going to be stuff you've heard before or you've probably lived before. So I don't want you to feel like I'm up here because I'm not expositing a specific passage and I'm not dealing with a specific theme or topic. Adrian asked me to do what's called a word share, life share. 
The idea being that um, as we live our Christian lives, the word should be lived out through us and we should learn things and do things which can be encouragement to others. So that's what I'm doing, a word share, life share. Um, yeah. We good, Luke? I thought you were coming up here to wire me. Um, so let me pray um, and then we'll get right into it. Lord and Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the opportunity and the privilege to be here today to um, have a go at teaching your people. Lord, it's, it's such a fantastic opportunity you give us to be a part of what you're doing in the world and in your kingdom to come. Everything that we do here has ripples and echoes in eternity. So help me to be aware of that. Help me to be mindful of your spirit um, within me and listen to your guidance to say the words which are coming from you, not the ones that I would like to say. So Father, yeah, please be with us all today. Um, Teach us something that comes from you. Amen. All right, so context. Context is key, um, as we say when we study the Bible. So I'll give you an intro. The context of my work is I work for an organization called Power to Change. I'm wearing the brand, um, formerly known as Student Life or more broadly Campus Crusade for Christ. It's part of a worldwide um, missional organization called now Crew Global, previously called Campus Crusade for Christ International. Um, we're on a bunch of countries and we've got we're the biggest not-for-profit organization in the world. So blah, blah, blah. Um, all of our movements, whatever sphere of people that they work in, whatever influence, are built on the three things in that stool. Three-legged stool, break one of them, it's going to fall over. Pretty obvious. Um, so everything we do comes down to one of those three categories, evangelism, prayer, and discipleship. Because we feel like strip everything else away, those are the key building blocks to living a Christian life. This is just work context stuff. And there's some of our values and vision and mission, yada, yada, yada. So that's the context. Sarah and I have working, been working with Power to Change now for five years, which is also, incidentally, as long as we've been married. So we got married and started being full-time missionaries the same year. That was fun. Don't <laughs> recommend it. Get to know each other before you go into full-time ministry. But anyway, um, so it's been five years now, and we've learned a lot of things along the way. Uh, but there's five things that stand out in particular that we kind of have to keep relearning, all right? And they're the ones I wanted to talk about today. As I said, none of them are going to be mind-blowing on you. You've probably heard them all before. Maybe we're just slow that we have to keep learning them, particularly me. But there's five of them, and here we go. Number one, God is on a mission. That is supposed to be a representation. Okay, they're both human. Just work with me here. He's chasing her. He's pursuing her. That's what God does for us. He's on a mission. He's chasing us. He wants relationship with us. And he doesn't let up. He doesn't get tired. He keeps going. So, yeah. Um, pretty obvious. Yep, God's on a mission. Um, but actually how that works out, some of the things we've learned. Okay, so. Actually, let's go back one. Before I, um, before I get into the things that I've learned under that, um, how would you describe God? If you had to describe God in one attribute, what would you say? I would say, rather obviously, God's on a mission. Um, what would you say? What would be the number one attribute that stands out about God? You all know I like interaction, so don't just sit there. Say things. He's perfect. Cool. What else? He's the creator. Love. There's no wrong answers, by the way. I just want to hear your opinions. Sovereign. Someone over here said something. Gracious. All-knowing. Cool. Good. All good answers. Very good. Um, obviously, we usually tend to think of God in the terms that we've most experienced him in, right? You know, the more you experience God's love, the more loving you think he is. The more you see him on mission, like I get to do in my job, 
the more I think, oh, you know, God's, God's missional. But God is an incredible person or being um, with many, many, many attributes that he somehow manages to hold all in perfect synergy. I kind of think of God like a sphere. I can't actually describe him to you, but the only way my mind can kind of conceptualize how anyone could do that, be perfect at everything all at the same time, especially things that seem to be opposites like mercy and justice or grace and truth and so on, um, is to think of a sphere. So imagine, like, for those of you that have used Google Earth, when you first log into the app or load up the website, you just get this big ball of the planet coming towards you, you know, getting bigger and bigger and bigger in your point of view. Now, turn that around in any direction and you'll get to see different parts of planet Earth. Cool, pretty obvious. Okay, so you move to Australia, of course, because that's the only place that God cares about, right? Um, no, not quite. Um, but you'll get a very Australian perspective. You'll see Australia come up into view. All right, so imagine, instead of Australia, that that is grace. Cool. Now work with me here. Move over to America, and here's truth. So God holds all of these different aspects, and as you turn the sphere, or as you interact with him, the aspect that he is um, dealing with you in, or having a relationship to you with, is the one you see the most, right? Does that kind of make sense? That's how I conceptualize God. All right, so within that sphere, he's got all the things that make him God, all the things you guys said. But for me, the one I see the most is he's on mission. So um, we're going to go back to Genesis. So if you have your Bibles, open to Genesis 3. I just quickly want to show this. Why I say God is on a mission. God's a great, complex, awesome person. He holds everything in perfect synergy. But for me, he's missional. He's working on the salvation and restoration of the human race. He's been doing that since the beginning. And if you see in Genesis 3, you probably all know what's there, the story of our fall. Our nations fall into sin. I just want you there because I'm going to pick out a few verses and I'm actually going to get somebody else to read them. But um, yeah, for now, my comments. Um, in Genesis 3, we read the bitter story of our fall. Adam and Eve knowingly and willingly disobey God, destroying their perfect world, severing their immortal connection with God and enslaving our world to the power of sin and darkness. They literally signed over the deeds of creation to the enemy. And we have suffered the consequences ever since. So we keep following the pattern. We keep making the same dumb choices. And this leads to all the suffering, wrong, and pain in our world. This leads to a common question that I get on uni campuses all the time. If there's a good God, why is there so much death and sin and suffering? They don't always say sin in the world. Um, sometimes it's phrased different ways. If there's a good God, in fact, if there's good at all, why do bad things happen to good people? And sometimes they phrase it differently altogether. If there's a good God at all, why doesn't he just fix everything? So how would you guys have a go at answering those questions? What would be your go-to response? Yabby, I'm sure you've heard that question from some of your classmates as a Christian that's a bit outspoken. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I could just repeat what she says. Hello. Hello. Oh, okay. So I guess basically, I don't know, when we talked about it, it came down to, and I have thought about it a lot, like how you would be able to explain that, because I think it's important to be able to defend what you believe. And, um, yeah, so it comes down to, in order that for there to be real love, there has to be choice. I guess, so we can choose God, mm -hmm. um, or we can choose sin, like Adam and Eve 
chose to eat the apple, but they, yeah, so that's why there was the tree. But if there's going to be the choice of not God, then there's going to be evil, badness. Yeah. Consequences. Yeah. Cool. Great answer. Um, how does that go when you're actually talking to people about it? Like, do they, how do they respond to that answer? To be honest, I haven't really had, like, the opportunity to have yeah. a full-on conversation like that. Cool. So, no worries. Um, often I'll, I'd give an answer similar to that, and a lot of people will then ask me, oh, okay, cool, so why is God still not doing anything about it? You know, he wants us to choose him. Well, a bunch of you have. There's all these Christians doing stuff in the world. Why is he still sitting and watching? You know, they sort of, their logical progression is, okay, so if the, it's up to us to choose to do God's things, then why isn't he responding to that? So I actually find that actually giving answers doesn't help a lot. A lot of people don't want an answer. They want to have a discussion. They want to think with you about something. So my go-to answer to these questions is a return question. A very simple one. Why should God be responsible for fixing all the mess? He didn't make it. <laughs> it's actually us that made it. Or you don't have to even tell them that. Just ask them, who do you think made all the mess? Why is it God's problem? Why don't we have to do something about it? So part of God's mission is actually to restore the world one day. And he's going to do that. But I think that the key to this whole thing is God created us for a purpose. He wants worship, he wants partnership, and he wants relationship with us. Um, <clears throat> under that, there's already a plan in place for if humanity should fall, which they did. God knew that Adam and Eve were going to fall. He still gave them the opportunity to. As um, Gabby explained earlier, he wanted us to choose him, choose to love him, choose to be in relationship with him, choose to be in partnership with him. Our purpose was to join God in his creative work. And we screwed that up, leaving God with a couple of choices. Smash them and start again. Option one. That is what I would have done, by the way. <laughs> Good thing I'm not God. <laughs> Option two. Uh, clear the slate. Forget about it. Rewrite it. Didn't happen. God actually has the power to do that. Or option three. Let's try and work through this. Let's still give them the choice. Let them suffer the consequences of what they did and see if them and their offspring can instead choose differently, which is what he did. That makes him a missional God. That makes him willing to work with people's choices and actually still bring glory to himself by saving them anyway. Now, I'm not going to say he saves everyone because it's pretty obvious he doesn't, but he gave us another choice. Um, not just continue in our sin, but choose to follow him. So I just wanted to quickly finish off this point by talking a little bit how God pursued me personally. I never saw him looking like a little Asian guy, but good thing Bruce isn't here. But this stuff didn't make a lot of sense to me. I was raised in a Christian home. My parents identified as Christians, but they didn't go to church. Um, so make of that what you will. Uh, they made sure that we were taught God's word, though, and we listened to Christian radio and so on and so on. So I just accepted it all for granted. It's like mum and dad's interpretation of the Bible was the only one I had. There was nothing to challenge that. There was nothing to give me a different interpretation. But when I hit my teenage years, I started asking these sorts of questions myself. Why is there so much suffering? Why is there evil? If God's good, why doesn't he fix it? And nobody ever took the time to explain to me that it's actually not his fault. So I threw the Christianity out with the baby water. Um, walked away from God, got a job and left home and said, I'm done with this rubbish. Um, God pursued me. Um, in the year that I left home, uh, after I left home, I lost pretty much all of my Christian friends because I started doing very bad things that Christians don't do. And so most of my friends were like, oh, don't want to be seen with that guy. Um, fair enough. I wasn't very nice to begin with. Um, <laughs> but there was this one Christian girl who pursued me. 
Not for a romantic relationship, by the way. Don't get that into your heads. She actually said to me, because I, I thought she was pretty cute, and I brought up the idea of going out, and she said, not on your life. You're wasting your life, man. You've got to sort things out with God before I'd even look at you twice. Shut down. <laughs> that was the best thing she could have done for me because it made me realize what an idiot I was at the time. So I thought, why is this so stinking important to her? And I started exploring it. I started reading the Bible for myself. I started asking questions of guys, not just Christians, by the way, other religions and other beliefs, trying to figure out why do people get so convinced of this religious nonsense? Okay? But it was actually that friend, that girl, her witness, her life, the way she lived and talked, and ultimately her tragic death, which me convinced, convinced me that God was real. I can go into that more later. But as I look back now, I can see how all along the way, God was pursuing me. He wasn't letting me get away, no matter how much I fought. And I didn't really think that I was worth saving at the time. After that girl died, I just decided if there was a God, A, he was an absolute scumbag, because if anyone deserved to live, it was her. Or B, he had some greater plan that was somehow going to work out, but that still made him a bit of a... I was going to say a-hole, but I can't say that. Um, <laughs> um, yep, yeah, cool. Um, or th option three he was actually not responsible for her death and something else was. And that was the option I eventually decided on. However, the thing that impresses me the most now through all of this is that God was unwilling to let me go, even though I was running hard in the opposite direction. That makes him missional. He's unwilling to give up on any of us. The Bible says it's his will, not his will that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That won't happen, but that's what God wants. And so I firmly believe God is a missional God and he is chasing us hard. Okay, so each of these flow into each other. Next one is that God desires our partnership. Famous picture up there. I edited out the naughty bits. Um, <laughs> um, the second lesson I've learned in ministry is that God desires our partnership. Even in the original sinless perfect world, what was Adam and Eve, what was their purpose? What were they supposed to do? Tend, commune with God, work. They worked in a perfect world. We are going to work in heaven. This is preparation for our real job that we're going to get in heaven. And for some of us, that might mean sitting around on clouds playing harps forever, but that won't be me. I haven't got a musical bone in my body. So I'm going to be doing something else. It's going to be work, and it's going to be good for us. In a perfect world, God still has stuff for us to do. And he desires our partnership. Adam and Eve had responsibilities. So do we. God's intention was always for mankind to join him in his creative work. We're made in God's image so that he could delight in our creativity, in our worship of him. We're made with the capacity for emotion so that we can know the extent of his love and grace and mercy. We're made with the capacity to think so that we can actually learn and understand about him and his world and his purposes. We're made to be with him, to worship him, and to enjoy him forever. Rip that off from somewhere famous. God doesn't need us is ultimately what I'm saying, but he desires us. It follows on from that pursuing. He desires a relationship and a partnership with every human being that he's ever created. We're made in his image for this. But he's never needed us. All the power that's ever existed belongs to God. He desires our friendship and partnership. He values each of us so much that he's willing to make the ultimate sacrifice, his own life, to give us a chance to come back to him. But just like a parent that really wants a relationship with their children, wants them to choose the right thing, 
wants them to come to them and hug them and say, I love you, I want to be with you, that still has to remain our choice. God's never wanted robots. He could have made them. So, he's actually willing to take the risk that we might not choose him. Because he so much desires that we choose to love him. Like any good relationship, if it's forced, it ain't real. You've got to choose it. Um, God's always worked his will through people. Pick any story in the Bible. Even if you just stick to the Sunday Steel classics. Noah's Ark, David and Goliath, Daniel in the lion's den. Pick one, anyone. Samson the strong, Gideon the brave. In every single story, God works out his will through a person or a group of people. He's always worked through people. That's his method of being on mission. Send one of them broken in my power to reach them, to save them. It's the same today. He hasn't changed how he works. God desires partnership with each and every one of you and me. What that looks like, anyone's guess. It looks different for you than it does for me. And that's cool because all the way along, God elects people to follow a chosen path that he has laid out for them. The challenge I want to leave from this point, and also the the previous one, if God's on mission, how are you partnering with him to be on that mission? What's your part? I have an idea what my part is now, what I do for a job, but it may not be that forever. And I say that's the way with all of us. But if we truly follow God, we need to be in partnership with him. Okay, just to finally wrap that up with a story from, well, not really a story, just a few points. Our ministry with Power to Change is all about partnership. We partner with churches to deliver training and resources to Christians. We partner with individuals through prayer and finances. We partner with other Christian groups to provide safe environments for people to explore Christianity and come to know God. And we partner with universities to encourage good life choices and the value of belief systems. That's all they'll let us do. (laughs) Um, Ultimately, we obviously partner with God to bring his message to uni students. So that's how we do it. How do you partner with God to reach those around you? Don't answer that one. Think about it. (laughs) Third point. Who here owns a car? Hands up. Most of us. Excellent. Who here owns a house? Hands up again. (laughs) Half. Sharing it with the bank. Yeah, sure. Okay, cool. Some of us. That's good. Um, Ownership versus obligation. Now, this is a tricky one because on the surface, they look very similar. I'm actually going to talk a little bit about motivations here. So let me ask another question. And this one I really do want honest answers to. No judgment, no guilt tripping, just honest answers. Why are you here in church today? Commitment. You were rostered on to do coordination. <laughs> Anybody else? Because I love the Lord. Love the Lord and his people. Great answer. To encourage, to be with family. What did someone over here say? Fellowship. Okay. Now, as I said, no guilt tripping. I'm not actually going to pick on any of you. Honest responses are good. I appreciate your being vulnerable. Um, in my work, I meet a whole lot of people, both Christians and non-Christians. And one of the most interesting things for me is to try and figure out what their motivations are for what they do. Um, people do some really dumb things. And you've got to wonder, what the heck were you thinking? How did you see that working out for you? Um, anyway, done that a few times myself. Um, people that don't follow God have a whole spectrum of motivations for the choices they make, the values they hold, and the things they do. But with Christians, I think I've narrowed it down to two. Those two. 
ownership and obligation. Let me use an illustration back to buying houses. Let's say you own your house. You want it to be neat and tidy. You want the lawn to look nice. You want to increase the value of what you already own. Um, so you pitch in, you work hard, you, you clean up the lawn, you rake up the leaves, you paint the outside of the house, you try and clean up the inside and hope the kids don't make a mess. You show off the house when people come over. You make effort to clean up before you invite people over. And you encourage the people to come over to treat your house respectfully because you value it, you own it, all right? And you're willing to put some effort in. Now, imagine you're not in that situation. You're me, you're a renter. <laughs> um, Instead of owning it, you just rent it from some landlord you probably never met, except that time when we rented from the parks. But anyway, um, <laughs> you don't take your obligations all that seriously. You signed a tenancy agreement, sure. You, you said you'd keep this place in good repair. But, you know, it's all right. Um, you don't really do that much to make sure it stays in good condition. If something big happens, you're like, oh, crap, better fix that. Um, then... The fateful day comes when you get a letter in the mail. Your rental agency will be sending in an inspector to see what the house looks like. Suddenly, you're a whirlwind of activity. Out comes the mower and the rake. The vacuum cleaner starts running. You bemoan the fact that you don't own a hedge trimmer. Um, and so on and so on. By the time the inspector comes, well, it looks pretty good. There's a few things you miss, but you move the pictures to cover that hole in the wall or that time you put your fist through the toilet door. Um, you cover it up and hope they won't notice. What's the difference? What's the difference between those two people? You don't actually care. <laughs> well done, Camille. What was yours? Yeah, one of them's superficial. One of them's only doing what he's obliged to do. And he only cares about it when he's going to get caught, if he hasn't done what he's obliged to do. The other one owns it. They're investing in it. They want it to be good. They want it to be built up. They want it to become better. That's what I see a lot of Christians doing with their walk with God. One of them owns it. One of them goes, I'm here for a purpose. I've got a calling. God's got something for me to do, and I'm going to put into that. I'm going to study his word. I'm going to pray. I'm going to get together with other Christians. I'm going to come to church. I'm going to see how I can serve. And the other one goes, oh, yep, it's Sunday. Better get to church. Oh, we're not too late yet. Haven't got time for a coffee. Darn it. Should have got up earlier. Oh, well. Oh, that's right. I was on crash this morning. Oh, well, oh, someone else will fill in. It'll be all right. Oh, the plate's coming around again. 10%, yep, the Bible says 10%. Okay, we're good, we've done that. Some people just live out of obligation. Now, I'm not going to try and guilt trip anyone. I'm not going to call any names. But the people that are living out of obligation are so different from the ones that are living out of ownership that you can see it really easily. Oh, dear, I just skipped to the end of my paragraph. Let me find my spot again. And to save time, I'm going to ask, just have a little think. What is your primary motivation for the way you live your Christian life? I won't guilt trip you, but maybe the Holy Spirit will. He certainly does me. Okay, back, found my spot. Let me share a story. There are two guys I discipled at a campus in Melbourne. I'm going to call them John and Tim. Those are not their real names, um, because they might listen to this. But anyway... Um, <laughs> Once a week, we meet up on Skype and we have a discipleship time. I give them some leadership training. We look at the Bible together. We try and explore a bit of how that is relevant to their lives. And then, um, yeah, we pray together. We have some accountability for guy stuff. And then that's it. Skype call over and done with. Discipleship's done for the week. Now, John is what you'd call a classic Christian. 
All right? So he grew up in a Christian home, did a church all his life. He was a youth leader at his church. Now he's at uni. Um, yeah, natural leader, natural people person. Everybody likes him. Great guy. You'd say, this is a guy I want in my movement. I want him because he'll be good. He'll lead people to God. He'll draw people in, that kind of thing. And sometimes they do. But John, John has this problem with wanting to do just enough to look good. So he's always late to our Skype meetings. And I ask him, so, you know, what did you learn from God this week? Oh, yeah, I don't know. Hmm. Oh, there was something good in the sermon last week. What was that again? Oh, oh yeah, 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 we were supposed to love each other. Okay, thanks, John. How about you, Tim? Now, Tim, let me tell you about Tim. This guy came from a broken home, had very few good role models. His dad abused him. Um, he's highly introverted. He speaks with a lisp, and he doesn't have very good self-esteem at all. Not the person you'd pick as a leader for a movement. Not the person you want out there sharing his faith, perhaps. He doesn't actually know his Bible at all. He only became a Christian last year. <laughs> every meeting we have, Tim shows up on time. He laps up everything I have to say. John shows up late and has a million excuses. Tim's there waiting for me every time. Um, Tim has led five people to Christ this year. John hasn't led anyone. Now, it's not about numbers, I'm sure. You know, God is going to use John one way or another. But he's using Tim now because Tim's available. Tim's willing. He knows next to nothing, but he's saying, I want to partner with God. I own what he's done for me. One time, actually just two weeks ago, I asked them both this question. I said, um, where's my question? <laughs> oh, there it is. I asked them, how does your faith in God affect your life? Because we we're trying to look at motivations and stuff, and I was trying to glean stuff for my sermon. Um, I said, how does your faith affect your life, your choices you make, things you do? And John said, Christianity is pretty dull and boring, to be honest, but I know it's the right thing, and so I do it. I want to please my parents so they keep paying for my uni. I stay involved in Christian stuff because I know those friends are good for me. Okay, fairly good answer, I suppose. Tim, on the other hand, said this, and I quoted him directly. I got his permission. He said, God gives me shivers every time I think about him. I mean, he's been fighting this epic war for ages against the worst supervillain that's ever existed. God's winning. He's smashing it. And he's done all that for me. Now he wants me to join in. I can't think of anything more crazy and exciting. It's like we're in a superhero movie and I get to be the sidekick. <laughs> you can see why I liked him, eh? <laughs> that's ownership. That's not obligation. That's I want to be right there in the action. I get to be the sidekick. <laughs> that's pretty cool. So am I just waffling on? Maybe. Um, maybe not. Maybe I actually learned some of this stuff. These guys... Um, a real encouragement to me because they both have a purpose. God's put both of them here and he wants to partner with both of them. One guy's owning that, the other guy's doing what he can out of obligation. Um, God plans to use John and he is going to use him. Um, but John will have opportunities that he may not take up and so God will still achieve what he has intended to use John for through someone else. Maybe it's him. Maybe someone else entirely. We can't thwart God's will. He gets his way. That's all there is to it. But... He may not have, you may not have the opportunity to be used by him if you're not there. And I want to take you to Exodus to show how this could happen. Exodus 32, 10 to 14. Somebody read that for me because I need to slow down. Thanks, Adrian. Exodus 10, sorry, 32, 10 to 14. Um, about being stiff-necked. Yep. 
That's the one. Exodus 32, verse 10. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I'll make you into a great nation. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. O Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent. Do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. I will give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. The Lord relented and did not bring on his, on his people the disaster he had threatened. Thank you, Adrian. So my point in that context, obviously, is children of Israel are in the wilderness. God has just given the Ten Commandments to Moses, and then he says this stuff. Go back down to them, those stiff-necked people. Leave me alone so my anger can burn against them and I will destroy them and make of you a great nation. Now, God would have still been achieving his promises to Abraham if he had done this. If he'd destroyed all of the rest of the children of Israel and made a great nation of Moses, he's still fulfilling his promises to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, which he previously made that he would make of them a great nation and bring the Savior through them and so on and so on. So my point here is if it weren't for Moses interceding for those people, they could have all been destroyed. God still could have achieved his promises. When we don't partner with God, when we do things out of obligation and don't own what he's given us to do, he will still achieve it. He'll just use someone else and we won't have that opportunity to partner with him. That's biblical. I didn't make it up. Okay, so he was going to wipe them all out and start again with Moses. Moses, however, decided to do the partnership thing God had put him there to do, intercede for his people. Beg God, remember your promises. Don't smash them. Give them another chance. And God, being a missional God... Point one, approves of Moses and gives them yet another chance. And another, and another, and another, and another. Um, so yeah, my challenge from that one is, do you own your own growth? Do you own your own calling? What God's put you here to do can't be done by anyone else. He'll still get it done, but he wants to do it with you. Next one. Now this one really helps me a lot. I need to keep learning that. Over and over and over. Has anyone here watched Sherlock? Good, some of you do. Okay, I don't feel so bad now. I like Sherlock. I think like Sherlock a little bit. Nowhere near as smart, but you know, don't like people very much, and you know, don't really care what they think of me, and so on. Um, but he actually gets surprised sometimes for all his genius and intelligence and a million facts that he has thought in his head. He still gets surprised. There's still things he doesn't see coming. He makes mistakes. Um, Heck, I make a lot of mistakes. Um, I often find myself totally unprepared for what God wants me to do, totally surprised by something he gives me, like the gift of a special baby um, or so on. One of the biggest complaints I hear from Christians about not getting involved, not partnering with God, is I'm just not ready. I don't feel ready. I'm not prepared to do any ministry. Just not there yet. Don't challenge me. I don't know how to share my faith. I don't want to go overseas where I might get a bad disease and help out with some accounts. Um, I'm just not equipped to do Sunday school. You know, I've only been a Christian for a year. <clears throat> Excuses. Doesn't matter if you're ready. God is. He's not surprised by this. He's never caught off guard. Off guard. He saw this coming. So, yeah, this really helps me because. In ministry, I get hit with a lot of questions I just don't have a pat answer to. They aren't there. There's a lot smarter people than me going to uni at the moment. 
my brain's getting old and slow. So it's really helpful to remember that I don't have to have all the answers. I don't have to be perfect. I don't even have to be ready. I can just have a little joke with God and say, hey, are you ready? Because he's always ready. <laughs> um, so yeah, every time I'm about to go out on campus and try to share my faith with some people, I have a little joke with God. I go, all right, you ready, God? You ready for this? Because you better be. I'm not. <laughs> and he always is. And we always have conversations. Um, two weeks ago, I was up in Townsville. And myself um, and this other girl, Tyria, um, she's a new Christian. only been a Christian for a couple of years. Um, she's a first-time leader on campus. We went out and for an hour and a half, we just talked to people and said, hey, mind if we have a few minutes to chat? What do you think about spiritual things? What's been your experience of Christians or of other religions? Questions like that. And normally, when we do that on campus, I get maybe about 50% response rate. Some people say, oh, yeah, yeah, I'd love to talk. But about half and say, no, nah, not interested. Go away. They hear the word Christian. Oh, yep, one of those. See ya. Um, in Townsville, I was shocked and surprised because I wasn't prepared. I went up there, uh, sort of a bit of a surprise trip. Some other people were supposed to be going, but then they weren't able to. So I got sent in. And um, I didn't want to go. Didn't want to be away from the family. I was sick of traveling. And I just, I got off the plane and I said, God, are you ready for this? Because I'm not. I haven't got anything planned. I haven't prepared anything. The first thing I had to do when I got on campus was take Tyria out witnessing to show her how it's done. So I said to God, I hope you're ready for this because I've got no idea what I'm doing. I know the theory, but I don't want to be here. I don't want to do this. I hope you're ready. God was ready. Tyria and I talked to about 30 people in an hour and a half, and only one of them said, no, nope, not interested. Now that for me is a record. I've never had only one person say not interested. And I just was blown away that God was ready. Not only that, sorry, spoilers, we didn't lead anyone to Christ, but we did get three people say that they wanted to start doing a Christianity Explained course, which sits them down for six weeks and takes them through what are the basics of Christianity, what was Jesus on about. So, progress, great. Tyria thought it was amazing. She's like, that's the best evangelism session I've ever had. I was like, me too. <laughs> I, wasn't, I wasn't ready, I wasn't prepared, but God did something cool there. So, there's always going to be things that will surprise you that you're not ready for. But don't worry about it. God's never surprised. He's always prepared. Um, one more story about this. That This one's really embarrassing to me, but anyway. Um, most of you will remember I went to Turkey towards the end of last year um, for a Christian conference, and things were a little bit warm in Turkey at that time. They shot down a Russian fighter jet and a few things like that, so Sarah was a bit worried about my going. Um, it's all right. We went. We were fine. So we're having this Christian conference, and it was great. People there from all over the world, lots of fellowshipping and learning stuff. It was really good. And then afterwards, I had two days spare before I was to fly home. And I was like, what do you do in two days? Well, you go to Ephesus, obviously. Did that. That was cool. You've heard about that. Um, the other thing, I said, I'm Australian. You go to Gallipoli, of course. So I went to Gallipoli for a day trip to you know, go, go see all the places where the Aussies fought and all that good stuff. Um, the funny bit comes with my tour guide. So... Um, he called himself Tom because we couldn't possibly pronounce his Turkish name. Um, but yeah, Tom was a really funny fellow. And along the way, he opened the door for us a few times, took us into restaurants where we were having breakfast and things like that. So I had learned a few words of Turkish. The one, of the, one of them was thank you, which is said, Tekish Kuladerin. So I said this to him as he opened the door. And he goes, you speak Turkish? <laughs> and I said, a little bit. <laughs> um, so then he took it upon himself to teach me Turkish. 
and he said, okay, something you really need to know how to say. Sigi, sini, siviorum. And I'm like, what does that mean? Oh, no, no, you don't need to know. I tell you when to say it. Okay. <laughs> so we go into this restaurant where we're supposed to have lunch, and there's this girl at the counter ready to take our orders and so on and take us to our table. And he goes, oh, you say it now, you say it now. Okay. Sigi, sini, siviorum. And she goes, bright red, steps back a bit. Oh, dear. Starts to look a little shaky. And I said, what did I say? And he's cracking up. And you just said, I love you. <laughs> he's having a great time laughing at me, his silly Australian friend that did what he was told. Um, and I just, I thought to myself, oh, this is so embarrassing. What do I do here? So I tried to explain to her, I'm married. See, look, I got my ring on. I did have it on then. I don't have it on now. Um, but I, I, I then thought, hang on a second, we can, we can work with this. Are you ready, Jesus? Are you ready? Um, and I said to Tom, I said, how do you say Jesus in Turkish? And he said, Isa. Jesus is Isa. You're Christian? And I'm like, yes. How do I say Jesus loves you? <laughs> and he goes, Isa sin is So I turned to her and said that. And she's like, which I'm Christian too. And then I was like, oh, good, we got out of that one. <laughs> but this girl, who I'd really embarrassed, was a Christian. And it was encouragement to her to hear someone from a completely different country saying, I'm a Christian too, and Jesus loves you in her own language. So God is ready, even when you're not, and someone's setting you up. <laughs> don't wait till you feel ready. You never will. I still don't feel ready. I'm not ready to have this baby. Every time I walk on campus to try and share our faith, I'm not ready. Whenever I get up here to preach, I am not ready. I prepare. I'm not saying don't prepare. Do the best you can in that regard. But don't wait until you feel like you've got it all set and you're ready. Because God's not waiting. He's ready. How will you choose? Partnership with him or back away until you feel prepared? Okay, last one. I didn't time this, so I don't know how long it's been. Shout out to all the Liverpool fans out there. I do not like Liverpool, but they've got a great slogan. So, the last one, don't try to serve alone. This one I have to learn over and over and over because I hate waiting for other people. I hate having to trust that they'll do their bit. I like to jump in and do it all myself because that way I know I'll get it done. It won't be great, but it'll be done. Don't serve alone. It's bad for you. This is biblical too. Going back to Moses again. Remember when Jethro came to him and saw him burning himself out, going through all the problems of all the people? And he said, don't do this. You're killing yourself. Appoint people to look after thousands and hundreds and the really big things they can bring to you. He was trying to save him. He was trying to teach him. Serve with others. Right through the Bible, God never gets people to serve alone. There's very, very rare occurrences where he does. But Adam and Eve, together, right at the start, all the way down, Abraham and Sarah, Moses goes with Aaron, Elijah has Elisha as an apprentice, Jesus sends out the 12 in pairs, and then the 72, Paul and Barnabas go together. Later on, Paul and Silas, and Barnabas takes Mark. There's always more than one. That's God's model of ministry. Why? Because he wants us to be connected. He wants us to be together, partnership together. So when God called us to ministry, Sarah and I, he did it together. We were made to be connected as all of us are, both to him and to each other. Um, I'd made the choice I wanted to do this work with Power to Change, then Student Life, but at the same time, I was really sweet on this girl from Toowoomba, Sarah, and she was still at uni. And um, 
back then, student life had a policy that if a married couple was to do ministry, they have to do it together. Not, you know, one of you does ministry, the other one works. And so I said to her, look, I really like you, and I think that we could work well together. So do you want to start going out? <laughs> and Sarah says, oh, yeah, that sounds good. Um, what would it look like? And I said, well, you know, I'm joining Student Life as a missionary, and they've got this policy that says people ha that are married have to work together. So that means not only do you, I want you to consider me as a future potential husband, but um, a future potential career as well. Only the two biggest choices you have to make after becoming a Christian. Um, what do you reckon? <laughs> and she said, oh, as long as you follow God, I'll follow you anywhere. And I said, right, we're going to get married. And a year later we did, and we're still in ministry together. <laughs> um, it's been a crazy ride, but God called us together, and we firmly believe that um, he doesn't call people to do ministry alone. The Bible's full of examples of people that did it together, and it's also full of wisdom like, you know, if one goes alone, how can he, and he falls down, how can he get up, but if there's another, he can lift him up. And if one lies down alone, how can he be warm? But if he lies down with another, he can be warm. A three-cord three rope is not easily broken. So don't try to serve alone. We're part of a body. We need each other. This goes for all of us. Just going to quickly read from... Actually, no, I'm not. Someone else is going to read from Corinthians for us. Adrian, can you read again um, those verses up there? Yeah. And really listen to this, because this is the heart of my message. The body is a unit, though it is made up of many parts, and though all its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, we were all given the one spirit to drink. Now the body is not made up of one part, but many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, cease to be part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, cease to be part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has arranged the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. And if they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you, and the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and the parts that we think are less honourable we treat with special honour, and the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has combined the members of the body and has given great honour to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. Thanks, Adrian. So I hope you're listening as he read that. Um, that's the crux of my whole sermon. This is about God. We need to keep learning these five lessons over and over, Sarah and I, particularly me. But this one in particular, we're part of a body. We cannot do the work we do. As Alan said earlier, he can't do going over to P&G and doing these accounts without the support of a church behind him, without the partnership. We can't do what we do on uni campuses all around Australia and all the travel we do without partnership. So remember that all of this comes back to God. God's on mission. He expects us to partner with him. He wants us to do it out of ownership of that calling, not out of obligation or just doing enough. Um, he's always ready, even when we're not. 
and he doesn't want us to do it alone. So as you go away, I guess my challenge for today, well, as we come to communion, don't be a Lone Ranger Christian. How are you partnering with God on his mission to save humanity? Do you take ownership of the calling that God's placed in your life? Are you willing to take risks in following Jesus? And finally, are you in a team or are you trying to be a Lone Ranger? Those are the lessons I have to keep learning, the challenges that God continually puts in my life. And I hope that they will have been an encouragement and a challenge to you. Because most of us, we're okay at one or two of those. But we all need to be challenged from time to time. What am I really doing here? Am I really following God? So yeah, that's my final challenge. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to go to communion. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege, the opportunity of joining with you. As my friend Tim says, you know, this is exciting. I get to be the sidekick. Um, the greatest supervillain ever is up against the, super, the greatest superhero ever, and I get to be involved on the superhero who's winning side. That's you, God. You're amazing. You're cool. You're beyond comprehension. But at the same time, you have a place for me in what you're doing. I thank you. I appreciate that, Lord. May this message be an encouragement to everyone here and everyone who hears it in the future that you have a place for them. You desire their partnership. You're pursuing them. You want them to own that and to come with you. Be with us, Lord, as we go into our week. Help us in the hard times, um, the times when it's so easy to react in a human way to the things that come our way. Help us to look to you and help us to respond out of partnership. Help us remember you're always ready and you've always got the answer. Amen. Okay, guys, um, for communion... I'm going to quickly read a little thing from Isaiah 40, because this is all about God. Um, Isaiah 40, starting at verse 25, just a few verses. God says this, To whom 